You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds passed right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome back to another episode of uh, the Spear MWI's podcast on the combat experience. My guest in this episode is Major Jesse Lansford. Jesse, thanks for uh, thanks for stopping by. It's a pleasure. So, uh, you are a math instructor here at West Point. That's correct. And you are a helicopter pilot. Yes. We have featured. Um, we've actually had a number of um, pilots on episodes. Probably half a dozen Apache, Black Hawk, Kiowa. Uh, and we've had a number of stories of um, people who have gotten hit by IEDs. I'm certain that you are the first helicopter pilot who has gotten hit by an IED that we've featured on the Spear. So I'm kind of excited to hear the details of this story. Um, and from my understanding, I'm one of the few pilots that stepped on an IED during the <laughs> mission in the in the history of pilots. So All right. So it's a unique situation. It is, it is unique. Um, okay. So. We, um, we're going to talk about a story that happened in 2011, but if we can kind of zoom back first and talk a little bit about your background. Now, when did you come into the Army? I joined the Army as a second lieutenant in 2008. I was commissioned through ROTC. I went to Cedarville University in Ohio and was commissioned through Central State University, which was nearby. Okay. And branched aviation? Yep. And that's what you wanted? Mm-hmm. I, there are, I suppose there are a few people who actually branch aviation that they didn't put that at the top. Right. Of not very many people get aviation and didn't want it. It's that's very true. competitive. Um, and did you know what you wanted to fly? At the time, I didn't, but once I got to flight school and started doing all the training, I saw that I really liked doing reconnaissance because the mission was something I was interested in because instead of just planning a route to somewhere and then you execute the route, come back, and you're done, you're constantly adapting your plan as you're flying around looking for things. And so it was more of a, a um, flexible mission that you figure it out while you're going, and I really enjoyed that. Okay, and so you ended up flying the Kiowa. Yep. Um, was that, so when you, when you go to flight school though, um, you've got, I mean, all options are on the table, right? Right. So they make an order of merit based off of your grades in class and your evaluations, depending on how well you're flying and everything. And so at the end of the course, they put the number of airframes on a chalkboard. And so say they have like a couple of Apaches, a few Kiowas and Blackhawks and a couple of Chinooks or something. And then they identify the number per one person in the OML and say, pick your aircraft. And then they race that one off the board and then they let the next one. They do it in person like that. Yep. That's so everyone's cool. in the room and you see them get erased. And at some point, sometimes there's only one aircraft left. 
So what are the options? You've got Chinook, Blackhawk, Apache. And Kiowa and at Kiowa. the time. Now the Kiowa is no longer an option because we phased it out of the military. Yep. So I actually just switched out of aviation into the functional area 49, which is uh, the research side of the, the military. Okay. Uh, but at the time, I uh, was able to choose the Kiowa. It was There was only one um, Apache and uh, one Kiowa available, and I was able to get one of those two. So I was excited. Is that... Um is that so? The Kai was phased out about was it a year and a half, two years ago now? I think the last unit um, came back from Korea. That's and, my understanding as well. And had phased that out. I'm curious as that if that's how that feels to see the aircraft that you flew in combat that you was the the first aircraft that you flew as soon as you were branch qualified. If you kind of do, you feel a little bit nostalgic about it. Yes, uh, and you know, if given the opportunity to fly, like go back and change my aircraft if I wanted to. I wouldn't. I really enjoyed the Kiowa. I enjoyed the mission. And my personal opinion at the moment is we still have a gap in the aviation community as far as scout pilots and a scout aircraft. The Apache is currently fulfilling that role mixed with uh, UAS systems. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as being a reconnaissance uh, an aircraft that's designed for reconnaissance. I don't think we have that at the moment. And what makes it so? What makes that particular aircraft so good at that mission? Have really good visibility. Um, so looking out of the aircraft, we usually flew with doors off, so you could look straight down at the ground. Uh, most of the cockpit is windows, so looking forward and around, you can see things really, really well. Um, also, due to the size of the aircraft, we were able to come down really low and really have good self-awareness of what our helicopter was actually doing. Um, in the Apache, you have really good systems and sensors and everything, but you're sitting uh, kind of like a fighter pilot in a, in, in a row. Sure. And so you can only look out the window and down or use your system. So um, it's a little bit harder to just come down low and really see what's going on. Sure. Okay, so you uh, you finished flight school, um, you got the Kiowa, and then where did the Army send you? So I got uh, assigned to Fort Campbell, Kentucky to 717 Cavalry which within the 101st Combat Aviation Brigade uh, within the 101st Airborne Division. Yep. And right after I arrived, just a couple of weeks afterwards, uh, they deployed. So When um, is this? This was the very beginning of 2011. So I arrived yep. at Fort Campbell in early... Uh, February, and they deployed in the middle of February. Is that is, is flight school that long? Uh, flight school depends on your airframe and how many pilots are going through, but back when I went there, it took about a year and a half to get through flight school. Okay. Uh, so you get there at the in early 2011, you said, and then the unit is kicking out the door to go to Afghanistan? Correct. So they just put me on the back burner for a moment while they're getting everyone out the door. And then as soon as the unit got into Afghanistan, they, then they told me that I would get out there in the middle of April. Okay. So I deployed to my platoon as a platoon leader. So my platoon's already there in Afghanistan, getting about a month, month and a half of the fight under their belts. And then I deploy straight to them. And then they're like, here, here's your new platoon leader that doesn't know what's going on yet. <laughs> is, and is it, and maybe this is different in an aviation platoon, um, but were, first of all, were you replacing another platoon leader or did they not have one at the time? They had a platoon leader, but he was a senior platoon leader, was a captain at the time, and they needed him in the S3 shop. Okay. So he uh, moved from that platoon leader position and went and worked uh, as staff. Okay. And what does a platoon look like? Um, you know, everybody knows what an infantry platoon looks like, but on all these different formations, it's, it's obviously very different. So how many people, what's the kind of the rank structure? 
All right, so in a aviation platoon, you have uh, three types of um, soldiers. You have, for example, the, the lieutenant or captain who's the platoon leader. So he's an O grade, so an O2 or O3 usually, a first lieutenant or a captain at that point. And then you have your warrant officers. So the most senior warrant officer in a platoon is usually a W3, and those will be your instructor pilots. You'll have one or two of those along with some uh, uh, tactical, um, we call them our tac ops warrant officers who are really responsible for mission planning and being expert in doing those. Those can be W3s and W2s as well. And then you'll have a lot of um, warrant officers who just got there, might be piloting commands, uh, but they don't actually have a assigned job yet. So their main job is just to fly the aircraft and be as good of a pilot as they can be. Okay. And then So those are the officer side. So you have the warrant officers and then the, the one O grade. And then you have your enlisted side. So you'll have your platoon sergeant. Uh, you'll have a few more senior NCOs like uh, E5s or E6s and then a bunch of more junior enlisted who are all the crew chiefs who are responsible for maintaining the aircraft and helping the aircraft get ready for a mission uh, to get us out the door. So how many pilots? So in a platoon, we'll have around maybe 10 to 15 pilots and then enlisted personnel is around 20 as well. And how many aircraft in the platoon? Each platoon now, uh, this depends on what airframe you're talking about. Uh, so for yours, for, for our squadron, we had about eight, six to eight um, Kiowas per platoon. Okay. Um, so basically enough that all your, you could get all your pilots up at one time, just about. Right. So okay. if we want to do a mass assault or something like that, not that you do assaults with uh, reconnaissance, but if we need to get them all up for some sort of mission, we could do that. And do you have, do you always fly with uh, the same co-pilot? No. Uh, so that was actually one of my jobs that I got shortly after getting there is to help develop the flight schedule to meet all the needs of the, the ground commander. So we'd have a schedule of all the things that need to be met, what mission windows that we needed to fill with pilots. And so then I would select the flight crews. So what staff aviators that were assigned to us and what warrant officers to stick in the, the cockpits and then assign their missions and stuff to them. And then they would go and get briefed for their particular mission and make sure their sleep cycle is set up for that. Okay. Well, I, have, I mean, I, I have probably a series of, of, of questions about this because I just find it fascinating, kind of the organizational side of, um, of how units are constructed and, and how they operate, especially at the small unit level. Uh, but, but we'll get into the kind of the story now, I think. So you deployed, you got there in April. Um, how, was, how was it falling in on a, on a platoon that you had never met? They know it's your first job. Um, was it tough? So it was difficult, but my platoon made it as easy as it could be. So my warrant officers uh, immediately accepted me for who I am. And I think one thing that helped is I started out with saying, I acknowledge the fact that I was ignorant and mm -hmm. said, hey, I don't know what's going on yet. Please help me be successful so that I can lead you all well. And so they accepted me well for that. They helped develop me into well, the instructor pilots showed me around the area and taught me to be a good pilot. I had to progress to being able to be mission ready as soon as I got there. So that took about a couple months to get to the readiness level that was necessary to do combat. And then uh, learning the jobs of my enlisted took a while. So I had to talk with my platoon sergeant. He would instruct me and teach me of all the different jobs enlisted people did mm -hmm. so that I could understand what they were doing so that I could help lead and design and, and do things to help the platoon be successful. So it was difficult, but uh, my my men and women that were in my unit did an amazing amazing job accepting me and helped me through the process. Did you you said that um, the instructor pilots kind of helped you become 
a good pilot. Did you feel like a good pilot when you first got there? No, because straight like straight from flight school, you know how to fly around, but combat and just flying around are completely two different things. And uh, so in flight school, you learn how to do traffic patterns. You learn a little bit about uh, terrain association. So while you're flying, you can have an idea where you are on the map and all that kind of stuff. Um, but those are just the base tasks to combat and actually coming up with a good mission and how to accomplish that mission and then actually going out and doing that mission. And so a lot of that development had to be done. So first get me ready to be in a mission and then they would always pair me with very senior pilots at first that if I had a stroke in the cockpit, that senior pilot could handle everything on their own. Sure. So I would be learning from them and at some point, during my deployment, then I could start taking more um, senior roles during the mission and not just be a leader when we're out of the aircraft. Sure. Okay. So the story that we're going to talk about happened when? August 9th of 2011. Okay. So about four months or so after you get into country. Um, By that time, did you feel like you kind of had your feet under you? Um, things were running smoothly. Did you did you feel like you were flying well? Yes. Yeah, so at that point, I had about two months of actual missions going on. So the first two months I was there was just progressing me and get me in the aircraft and help me understand the, the, the terrain and how to fly in Afghanistan. And then the two months after that is when I was actually doing some missions, always paired with a senior pilot. Okay. So this particular mission, I was paired with a W-4. They were just now starting to wean me off of always depending on senior pilots, and they would start assigning me to more junior pilots pilots and I could I could be an effective member of the team at that point so this was one of my last missions where I had to be assigned to a senior pilot Um, so he was letting me do a lot more of the cockpit management and helping decide what we're going to do next and really testing my abilities to see if I was ready to move on to the next stage and be assigned to to junior pilots okay when you do that when you have two people up in the aircraft um how, how are the responsibilities divvied up? Is there clearly one person who's in charge and the other person is less so? Or are there individual tasks that can be kind of a, like shared between the two of you? You can hand things off. Is it more flexible, I guess? It's pretty flexible, but there's always one person who's chosen to be the pilot in command. Mm-hmm. And usually that's the more senior pilot, but not always. And so when the flight schedule is developed and the crew is chosen, uh, the pilot in command for that mission is also decided. Um and so sometimes a senior pilot will let the junior pilot be the pilot in command to sure. log those hours because sure. those are tracked. But in a situation like that, usually the more senior pilot in command is the one who's ultimately responsible for that aircraft. Okay. But once that's chosen, there's always duties. Someone always has to be flying the aircraft. The other one's more responsible for taking notes, doing the other. Um, there's lots of uh, things in the aircraft that always have to be monitored. Other radios to talk to all the ground units, talk to the uh, other towers when you're flying in and out of the airport and stuff like that. So a lot of communication going through the radio. And so we have five channels, only two pilots. So one's really focused on a lot of those radios while the other one's focused on piloting and maybe only one of those radios. Okay. And additionally, we have to have someone who's taking notes and keeping track of all the reconnaissance details that we're, we're conducting. So as we're flying, maybe we'll take pictures of things. So you look out the window and take pictures of the camera, write down notes about what those pictures were for, and do all the other admin things while the other person's flying and uh, controlling the flight. Okay. Um, we, had a, uh, we had a story with an Apache pilot um, several episodes ago, and she said that they they should talk about um, 
aviate navigate communicate i think were the three that she said that like were kind of the the triaged order of priorities Mm -hmm. um that they had and i found that really interesting a really interesting framework to kind of understand all of the different things that go on up there but to know that no matter how much stuff is going on you still have the the number one priorities and number two priorities and so on so so what was the mission this day when you went up on august 9th yep so i was in what's called a pink team uh, which is an Apache as your trail ship and a Kiowa as your lead ship. Oh, really? And we were tasked with a security mission. So our job was to get over where a lot of kinetic activity actually occurs and be that in-air presence to respond to any troops in contact or to provide escorts to any convoys or say there's a medevac mission and they want to escort to get that uh, medevac bird in and out. So it's there as a quick reaction force but that's already in the air. Sure. So, um, so we were out there for about five hours already, and we had some minor troops and contacts where they'd say, hey, we're getting attacked by this wood line. We'd fly over. There'd be guys in the woods. We'd shoot at the woods. Uh, the bad guys wouldn't shoot back anymore, but we can't see anything what's going on in there. So either they fled or something, but the friendlies aren't getting shot at anymore. So problem solved, at least temporarily. Okay. So engagements like that. And you weren't assigned to a specific ground unit or to support a specific mission. You're kind of up in a box. Correct. So an area. So there was a lot of battle space owners, different battalions in that whole area. And we would transition around that whole battlefield and they but all knew we were there. Um, so... I'd say it about uh, 30 to 40 miles horizontal and maybe about 15 miles okay. nor- uh, north-south to make a big box Okay, about that size. But I'm, this is all just memory. I'm, sure. I'm not sure how accurate that is. Okay. So you're, you've are you been up in the air for, for five hours already mm-hmm. and you had responded to at least one? Uh, yeah, there's a couple. We okay. had two minor troops in contact, but nothing that exciting. Okay. And then what? And that at that point, we went back to base because our mission window was over. The five hours were up. And as we were in the FARP refueling the aircraft, rearming it with uh, what needed to be done, um, we get a call saying that there was a sustained troops in contact to the north. And we were out to the west this whole time. And so there's currently no teams nearby that can respond to the sustained troops in contact. The other team, we just did a battle handover just miles out to the west. And so it would take them a good while to get up there. Okay, so, so, you, so you had been out to the west of Kandahar, Kandahar Airfield, uh, and now this this troops in contact is is happening to the north correct okay and so uh we asked for a mission extension window and asked if we can go support our battalion gave us that authority so we took off and headed up to the north and i contacted the the battle space owner um it was a fob called front neck right next to lake front neck where it's got its name and uh, they responded with uh, that there was an American observation post on the north side of a valley. So there's a ridge line of mountains there, and there's an American OP right there observing enemy activity down in the valley. And there is also an Afghan uh, observation post on the south side of the valley also trying to observe that same type of activity. And they were uh, receiving fire from five insurgents who were armed with either AK-47s or PKMs, but there is some uh, light to medium machine guns being used as well. But then they told us that we couldn't contact the unit directly because their radios had ran out of batteries. So So, the unit that was in the OP? Correct. Okay. So, uh, So we were told fly out to that area. The last thing we were told is, and they gave us the description of the five individuals who were in the valley and said, if you could assist, please do so. So when that, so as I'm curious, 
when when they give you that description, how detailed is that? They give a, a little bit of description of what they're wearing. So in that case, they just said the normal Afghan garb of military-aged males was sure. the, the type of description they give at the time. And then what kind of, like, if there was distinctive colors that they're wearing, they give us that as well. Okay. And then tell us what they were armed with and what they were doing. Okay. So then as soon as we popped over the ridge line. We looked down and we saw tracers shooting down from what looked like an observation post on the north, shooting down into the valley. We saw return fire going up there. We saw firing going down to the south, to the Afghan side that we assumed. And so following those tracers, we could quickly get um, positive identification of the friendlies on both sides. Mm -hmm. And then we looked down in there and there's five guys holding AK-47s at PKMs. Uh, maneuvering around, shooting up to the north and the south. So it was really easy to identify who the enemy was. What time of day is this? Uh, it was late afternoon, so okay. we're talking about 1,500. Okay, so it's it's daylight. And how close do you have to get before you're, you're confident that... I mean, besides the fact that there's tracer fire coming to and from this clear point of origin, but for you to be confident that, hey, yes, those are the five military-age males that we got a description of. If we're just using our eyesight and not using any other kind of sensors it's nice to be within like 2,000 meters to try to see if there's any uniforms mm -hmm. and what kind of stuff they're wearing but what's difficult is distinguishing between a and a and enemy insurgents or civilians and enemy sure. insurgents because they can quickly uh change in and out of uniform or just pick up a weapon and now they're the enemy if they're using it inappropriately okay um but since we could see uniformed uh, Afghans and the ANA compound, their OP, we could definitely tell that they were friendlies. And those down there in the, the valley had no uniforms on whatsoever and were wearing the the garb that we were expecting them by the description given to us. Okay. So you're flying now with the Apache. Um, how are you kind of oriented? How, how close are you flying? Is, is, is the Apache flying higher than you? So our usual, usual um, SOP for that is the um, Kai would fly down low and in front, and the Apache would fly up higher and behind. And so we would be doing the reconnaissance or seeing what's going on, developing the situation, and then the Apache would be positioned to use its guns to bear on whatever uh, target that we find or to cover us if we also start taking fire from a uh, wood line or something. Okay. So at that moment, the Apache was a little bit higher than our altitude, but since we're going over a ridge line, we we're similar altitude. But as soon as we popped over the ridge, uh, we got to the ridge first. We dropped an altitude maybe uh, 1,500 feet really fast. So we, we just dropped the collective. Um, we did a quick spiral to the left, and that way we could approach the enemy from west to east, keeping the American friendlies on our, right hand, or our left hand side and the Afghan friendlies on our right hand side to avoid any uh, blue on blue or blue on green type sure. firing. Okay. Um, at that point, all five insurgents saw us coming. They tried to engage us with their PKM while we were descending. So we had the tracers shooting up past the aircraft, which further developed my assumption that they were <laughs> they were enemy. Sure. Um, while we are doing that, I called up to fr uh, FOB Frontenac and informed them that we were receiving fire from the five insurgents and let them know that we were planning on engaging at that time for two reasons. They matched the description of the enemy, and we have a right to self-defense. So we then engaged with our 50 caliber machine gun, as they were running into a pomegranate orchard. So they're trying to reach that tree cover before we could get to them. But uh, So you had already circled around out to the west of them and were coming back in from west to east. Yes. 
And so what is a Kiowa armed with? So on our left side of our aircraft, we have a 50 caliber machine gun. It's called a MP3, which shoots about a thousand rounds per minute. So it shoots really fast, but we only carry up to 500 rounds. So if we just hold down the trigger, uh, we'll be, we'll burn out in 30 seconds. So we have to do very controlled bursts. On the right hand of the aircraft, we were generally armed with a seven pod rocket launcher. Now you can have different configurations. You can go with both rocket pods on both sides. You can carry Hellfire missiles, but our uh, normal configuration was just 50 cal and rockets. Okay. Um, so at that point, we're engaging with our 50 cals. They were trying to get to the, to the orchard. And right before they got there, we were able to engage and we killed four of them, or at least saw their bodies fall. And one of them escaped into the woods and got away. So at that moment, the Apache was watching us do that engagement. It wasn't in a position to engage and knew we had to hurry because they were getting into the woods and we didn't want them to get away. But as soon as they saw that insurgent go into the pomegranate orchard, they got their uh, thermal imaging sensor on that insurgent and started following it through the woods. Wow. Um, okay, so you have, when you're engaging with the 50 cal from, um, from the air to these targets on the ground, how far away, like what's the, what's the sort of max effective range of the weapons? System? I like shooting at about a thousand meters. So if I'm between 750 and a thousand meters, it's a pretty comfortable distance with the 50 cal, just because it shoots so many rounds. You can see the tracers flying at the target. It's pretty easy to walk the rounds in on, especially personnel in the open. Um, any further than a thousand, maybe 1500 or something, you're starting to have to aim up and having the rounds come down a little bit, a little bit harder to hit the target accurately. And what's the aiming mechanism? So this will make you laugh a little bit. Um, we have some, uh, electronics that help. We can actually, we have a, what's called a mass mounted sight, mm -hmm. an MMS on the top, which you can lock onto a target. And then there's symbology in the cockpit that you can line up and pull the trigger and use that. But it takes a while to get that mass mountain sighted uh, locked onto a target. And so when we're engaging with 50 cal, we actually use a grease marked smudge on our windshield. Uh -huh. And so prior to going on a mission, we go to a test fire and we mark that uh, smudge on the windshield with the grease marker before we go out there. And, you know, you get a good sense of where to put it on the windshield. Then you fire at your, your test fire. And if the rounds go where you expect them to go, you leave the smudge there. If they shot off to the side a little, you move your smudge over. <laughs> and so looking at a target on the ground, just because of the, the change in distance between your windshield and the target, there'll be two smudges just because you have two eyes. So depending on how far away the target is, you either put two smudges on both sides of the target or you put them a little bit below or a little bit above and pull the trigger. And it's really fast to aim because you don't have to have to get a lot of complicated things lined up. You just put the grease smudge on the target and squeeze the trigger. And then when you, if you need to, um, if you need to adjust, if you need to, like you said, walk the rounds into the target, right? then you can either use your cyclic or your foot pedals to, uh, just adjust the, the stream of fire, the tracers just a little bit to get rounds on target. So the, the whole air, you move the whole aircraft rather than you can't, you can't. Correct. So the gun is fixed to the aircraft. So where okay. the aircraft points is where it shoots. Interesting. Okay. Um, that's actually really fascinating to me. Okay. So you've, you've, uh, taken out four of the five targets. The Apache now has, is tracking the other one with its thermal sensors. And then what? So at that same moment that we are engaging an Afghan in the OP on the south side of the uh, valley steps on an IED. And I don't know if it's the same moment or at least in the same vicinity of time. And so they send up that sit rep and, and Fob Frontenac hears about it. An and, Afghan soldier. Yes. Okay. And they get concerned now that, all right, we just got a report that you're engaging and you killed four enemy. And we're also getting a report 
from the Afghans, uh, the National Army, that they just had a casualty. So cease fire, don't shoot anybody else until we verify that the right people died. So from our perspective, we were we were certain that we shot the right people, but we didn't want to um, sure. infringe on that at all. So we let the guy continue to walk through the woods, and we monitored him. And then we called back to Fob Frontenac and asked if there's anything else we can help with at that moment. And they told us that there was a convoy headed towards the OP's location who was carrying batteries for their radio so we can get comms back on. So we told them, hey, that's too easy. We're going to fly down to wherever that convoy is, land. They could give us the batteries, and then we can fly up near the OP and get them on, on the net so we can start seeing what's going on. And sure. maybe they can tell us if we're engaging the right people or not. So we quickly did that. We flew over where the convoy was, just a short four-minute flight by helicopter. Would have taken them another hour uh, via ground vehicles. We landed. They gave me the batteries. Um, I was sitting in the, the left seat. So. Did both aircraft land when you do that, or does the Apache no, stay No, just the, the Apache stays up because the Kai was so versatile. We just yeah. land basically mm-hmm. anywhere and uh, do things quick like that. Okay. Uh, so we got the batteries and then flew up near where the OP was and gave them the batteries, and then they finally got on the net. Um while they were getting their batteries into the radio because they had to move back up to where the OP was, we flew up to where the insurgent was, and he had just walked out of the pomegranate orchard on the east side of it and had his uh, AK slung on his back and was just walking along like he was just out for a walk trying to pretend he wasn't associated with anything that just occurred. Um, the Apache had monitored his progress all the way through the pomegranate orchard, so we were certain it was the same person. Um, so at that point, I got my M4 off the dash, and we fly doors off, and I had the M4 pointed out the window to suppress him if we needed to so we could shoot off to the side because we have no weapons that shoot sideways besides the M4. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had my M4 oriented at him, and then we started circling him. So he hid behind a bush, and as we circled around him, he just hid around on the other side of the bush. So it was this little... Uh, weird dance that where we just kind of we can see you that bush isn't helping you at all Um, at that moment that we just finished one of our passes near him uh, the op got on the net again confirmed to their battalion and to us that we had shot the right personnel and requested that we would go ahead and engage that last enemy who got out of the pomegranate orchard Um, so we requested the apache to hit it with the 30 millimeter cannon Um, that they're equipped with. And so they uh, engaged it. And uh, when we came back for a battle damage assessment, uh, we could not find his body because it was so destroyed. Those rounds hit right inside of him and they're exploding 30 millimeter cannon rounds and completely destroyed his his body there. It packs a punch. Yeah, yeah, it does. So especially if it hits right inside him. Um, So he's been neutralized successfully. And at that time, the OP that had been out of batteries, called us again and said, hey, we've also been out of water for several hours. Do you have any spare water aboard? And uh, as Apache pilots and Kiowa pilots, we fly with maybe a water bottle on our dash or maybe a camelback hanging on our seat behind us, but we don't have like spare water for a whole squad or platoon or however many people were in that OP down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we told them they'll hang tight, that we'd fly up to Fob Frontenac. And we went up there and landed and all the way there requested that they get some water that we could take back. So upon landing, the the um, crew chiefs in the area came over and put two cases of water, water bottles, on my lap. So I can't fly anymore, not the preferred method. We like everyone to be able to grab the cyclic who are, who are pilots. And then put a box of electrolytes in the aft electrical compartment. And then we uh, flew back 
to the OP, and the W-4 is flying at this point, and I'm very thankful he was able to land on the very top of the ridge on a rock just big enough for our skids. I couldn't have done that. In Afghanistan, we're so high and hot, uh, the Kiowa is unable to hover out of ground effect. So in ground effect, that's when we're, you're within like one rotor disc's width of the ground. The pressure from the moving of the air impacts the ground, providing you additional lift. When you're out of ground effect, basically more than one rotor width away, then you're just basically beating the air to keep you up in the air. So you move the air through, but there's no pressure created by pushing off the ground. So we had to come down and then try to get within that one rotor length uh, distance before we got close to the ground and then land right on that rock on wow. the very top of that ridge in an awkward direction. So he got us landed. Uh, a major comes running up to the aircraft, which I'm still confused about why they sent the major to come get the water. Um, I was like, is this Star Trek? What's going on right now? Um, so I handed him the water and then the W-4 said, LT, hop out and give them those electrolytes. So that was that moment. I was like, here's my 30 seconds out of the wire on the ground. So I jumped out of the aircraft, uh, ducked around to the back of the aircraft, pulled the electrolytes out of the aft electrical com compartment, and then uh, kept my head down as I exited the rotor blades and headed down to where the OP's position was. They didn't know I was coming, but they saw me about 20 feet out and looked surprised that here comes a pilot with his little mic cord dangling behind him. And I hand them the box of electrolytes. They give me a thumbs up. And I headed back to the aircraft. How far was that? It was about, I want to say it was about 20, 20 to 30 meters. So it's very close from, yes. the, from the rock that you landed on to... Not far at all. Okay. So it was, I was only out there, it, it took me just like 30 seconds to get down there and then most of the way back. Okay. So then as I'm walking back to the aircraft, uh, the 50 cal, like I said, is on the left side of the aircraft. And that's where I was seated. So I had to pass in front of the 50 cal to get inside the aircraft again. Since it was up on the rock, the 50 cal was at my head height. So I was trying to duck under it while trying to climb up on a rock. And I knew it was loaded and usually try to walk around the 50 cal in a different manner so you don't actually get shot. So right as my head's in front of the 50 cal and I'm like, if this goes off, I'm dead. I step on the IED. And I don't know if it was a pressure plate or if there was a trigger man located nearby that was just waiting for the, uh, the pilot to get back so he can kill both of at the same time. But it went off at that moment. And uh, my first thought was, I just got shot by the 50 cal. And these are the last few moments of my brain firing before I black out. Um, at that moment, the Apache was circling overhead to make sure we we're safe and was videoing us. And he saw me step on the IED and saw the explosion and several pieces of like rock and stuff went up into the rotor blades and then a cloud of dust covered the whole thing. And from that view, it looked like my body impacted the rotor blades and just got chopped up and I died. So uh -huh. that's what that uh, Apache pilot who I just did pre-flights with saw. And so he immediately turned off the video just out of reflex because he thought I died. Um, in reality... I was bent over. Most of the blast hit me in my body armor that I was wearing, just a front plate. Um, it knocked the wind out of me, threw me in the air just a little bit, but the blades are pretty low, so a little bit was still closer than I'd like to be to the blades. Um, I was dazed and confused, but the, the other pilot, the W-4, thought we were taking RPG fire or something. So in my confused state, he managed to wave me into the aircraft. So I stumbled and limped over and got my, my backside on the aircraft seat. And then since he thought we we're taking RPG fire, as soon as I got in and I got my leg over the cyclic, he took off because he didn't want the, the risk of getting hit by something else. Um, we had warning lights all over the dash because the, the IED was under the aircraft. So our DC generator was offline as, as well as a few other issues with the aircraft. 
So I plugged my mic cord into the intercom to try to talk to my uh, the W4 to see what was going on because I was starting to come to my senses at that point and the shock was fading off, but my, my helmet was jacked up now and I couldn't talk. So I lifted my face shield and I looked at him and my face was completely numb because I took a lot of the blast in my face and I had some a few rocks embedded in my skin. And I wasn't sure if my nose was there or not. So I remember looking at him. I was like, is my face okay? Because I was thinking about my wife back at home looking at my face without a nose or something. And I had blood dripping down onto my uniform from my face. So I was just hoping that my face was all right. And he just gave me a thumbs up, which he would have done no matter what my face looked like. Uh, so at that point, we flew back up to FOB Frontenac because that was the closest friendly location that we could go to. Which is how far? Uh, it was just a, like a four-minute flight. Okay. So it didn't take very long. We didn't know how long the, the bird was staying in the air because of the damage that it took. We didn't know what kind of damage it had. So we got to the FOB. They pulled up in a gator, uh, threw me in the back of the gator. At that point, my foot was swelling up, and it felt like it, it hurt real bad. So I didn't know if it was broken. I didn't know if I had a bone sticking out. I didn't know if my... I felt I, I felt like my my boot was filling up with blood, um, but as soon as they got me to the med shack, they threw me on a table, cut my clothes off of me, and they checked me out. And all I had was serious bruises, sprained ankle. The side of my face looked like I had a shotgun filled with BBs that just shot me, but as far as serious injuries, there were none. Easily recoverable in a few weeks. Wow. So at that time, just to finish off the story, uh, someone called for a medevac because they heard pilot steps on IED and assumed the worst. And so a medevac came and landed uh, while they were patching me up a little bit. And the crew came inside, asked for who stepped on the ID. I raised my hand. They're like, you look fine. Do you want to ride back? And I was like, I need to go back somehow. So they threw me in the back of the medevac, flew me back to the hospital at Kandahar Airfield. And then they tested me for brain damage and any other issues. And... Uh, I was okay. They just sprained ankles and bruises and small abrasions and a little bit of blood here and there. And my nose was still intact. So that was great. <laughs> wow. Um, so I have several follow-up questions, I think, um, based on, on, on the story that you just told. Um, first of all, when you said it was, um, it was kind of a challenge to be able to land on that, on that rock, was it also a challenge to take off from it? Yes, because when you're that hot and heavy... Uh, and high in Afghanistan, normally we would do, uh, we would just drag the skids a little bit like on a runway mm -hmm. or stay low to the ground and stay in, uh, in ground effect until we pass through what's called ETL or effective transitional lift. And that's where the airspeed or relative airspeed is going fast enough that now we get enough lift that we can actually take off and get out of uh, in ground effect hover distance. So because we were right there on the edge of the mountain, there was no staying in that uh, in ground effect as we sped up. So we had to, we didn't over torque it. We just went into our, um, our limits. We get a certain amount of seconds per limit amount. And so we used that to get up in the air and then flew off. But uh, when you're in a situation where you think you're taking RPG fire, you can you do what you need to do with the aircraft to survive. So were, were you, I mean, you, you talked a little bit about this, that you kind of, um, you know, went into shock, or at least were like dazed and kind of confused about what had happened necessarily. Um, did you, before you got back to the FOB, did you kind of, come around enough that you're you're aware of the warning lights and whatever else is going on and and ask like having re-asking questions about the aircraft damage uh 
I became aware about two minutes before landing, but because my helmet's audio system was messed up due to the blast, I couldn't talk to anybody. Okay. So I couldn't talk to the other pilot. All I could do was be aware of the, the pain to my face, the pain in my, my leg, and then the bruises everywhere else as I was starting to recover from getting the breath knocked out of me and everything. But at that point, all I could see was all the lights going off and... Due to my state of shock, it was overwhelming that I wasn't able to analyze it like a good pilot should at that point. Sure. Was it um, was it pretty da- badly damaged? And from what I understand, it didn't actually receive a lot of damage besides knocking the the um, DC generator offline and a few other things. You could see the speckling of um, rocks being hit on the side. The the bubble underneath the windshield underneath the aircraft was cracked due to to the IED. But in the end, our guess is that, that the HME, as, I, as we flew away, I have this memory of glancing down where the little crater was where the IED went off. And I saw the remnants of a jug, like a big old milk jug that was in there. And our best guess is that there was a small charge, like a landmine or something, attached to that big jug of HME. And that is all that went off. And the HME was either too wet or it wasn't packed tight enough, or at that moment, God just said, hey, it's not time for you to die, and didn't let it explode. Wow. But it was a very blessed moment for me there to not have that IED explode properly, because if it had, uh, there was enough HME there to destroy the helicopter as well. The the major that ran out to, to pick up the water from you, did he take basically the same route that you did yes which is part of what makes me wonder if it was a pressure plate or a trigger man sure and so if it was a trigger man maybe he was just trying to wait for a better moment another one didn't happen or the pressure plate was just small enough that that major lucked out and didn't step on it yeah but poor first lieutenant lansford (laughs) stepped on it real good (laughs) you said um you mentioned that uh that you had this like awareness that you were outside the wire and on the ground um was that the only time? I mean, one of the few times anyway that you were? Right. Up to that point, any time that we were outside the wire, we were either in the air or we were landing in a fob to refuel. So at no other time did I walk on the ground outside of a uh, friendly contained area. Did it, feel, did it feel different? Did you feel more vulnerable? Yes, I did. I felt in the way naked yeah. because here I am not in my aircraft just running across the ground all I had on me which was probably a poor decision was my M9 on my hip so if I got separated from the aircraft I didn't have my M4 it was still strapped to the dash of the the Kiowa and so there I was out on the ground and if the helicopter left I would have been there in combat if like he started taking RPG fire and had to depart I would have been there on the ground with that OP and whatever mission they were doing, I'd have to be attached to it until I could get uh, removed from the situation. We had a story. Um, the only other Kiowa pilot, I think we had, we had um, a guy who had been, he, he was a Kiowa pilot and he, um, there was a, a friendly American casualty and they were the only ones nearby and they couldn't get a medevac helicopter. And so he turned to his, his um, uh, co-pilot and, and, and said, should we land and, and I'll get out and try to stick him in my seat? I mean, we might be this guy's only chance. And so they did. They landed. And he described also a pretty precarious, um, you know, hasty LZ or whatever you want to call it. That, um, And they landed and, and got the casualty in there to, to, to try to get him out. But he said then he was stuck. And he said the feeling was so surreal. And it was even more so because he had his flight helmet on. And so all this, like, you know, it was a platoon or something. And the soldiers were kind of looking at him like he was an alien because... 
you're so out of the right gear on. Yeah. 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 So he described the same thing, but, um, so it's really interesting to me that you, that you said that because, you know, especially in, um, in, I mean, anybody who's deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan, they're always helicopters above. Um, there, it just seems like they're always there. They're such a huge feature of what we're doing and they're, they're, they're involved in everything. I mean, you, the mission that you were talking about, you were doing recon, you were doing close air support, um, you were doing resupply. I mean, you were kind of doing everything. So it seems like such a big feature. Um, and you're engaged in the fight, you know, including in, in this story, obviously, when you when you responded to the troops in contact, but then that you feel different when you're on the ground versus being in the air is really fascinating to me. And so one part of that is when you're in the air and you're so far away from the ground, there's a certain feeling of uh, detachment yeah. from the ground. Um, I, I hate saying it like this, but it's to a certain extent, it feels like a video game. Yep. And that's not the best way to put it, but you get that sense where it's not as real as it is. So yep. as, as when tracers go by you, as long as they aren't touching your aircraft, you have a sense of invincibility, even though you're very fragile up there in the air. One round hitting the wrong component in your aircraft, you're now flying a grand piano that you try to auto-rotate to the ground. Uh, but as long as those rounds aren't hitting you, you feel a little bit detached. You see what's going on, you make these engagements, um, but as far as the repercussions of what happens down there, you aren't directly involved. You fly back to base and you go back to your bed at night. Well, you know, the if you're if you're an infantry soldier and you get a sprained ankle, you're you know, you're you're basically not useful until until you heal because you got to be able to hump your stuff up and over mountains and, and things like that. As an aviator, um, I would imagine, too, because you've got foot pedals, right? So was there a period of time before you could get back into the aircraft? Yeah, but it was about two weeks before I flew again. My commander was really concerned about what happened and really wanted to use the, the phrase, get me back on the horse again as soon as possible. Yeah. That way I wouldn't feel uh, scared of going back out into combat. So I was as ask soon as I was physically able to fly the aircraft safely and be an asset to the team, uh, he got me told me to start putting myself back into the the missions. And uh, so I was back out there about 14 days later. So in that intervening two weeks, were you, did you kind of reflect on it? Did it, was it, was it a bit, I mean, you know, fear is not a bad thing. If you, if you're, if you've spent time in a combat zone and you haven't been afraid, you know, you're probably lying. Um, But did you have any sort of apprehension about going back out? I think the biggest one that I had was learning that just shortly after the IED contact that I had on that ridge, a similar location not far away, another member of, I don't know if the same unit, stepped on an IED and was hurt way worse than I was. Um, But that put into perspective how um, serious of a situation that I was in. Just so happened my IED didn't go off. His did. Yeah. So it could have been me, the one that got completely blown off the mountain, and it could have been him that just had a little toe popper and had a sprained ankle. Um, So with that in mind, I felt very blessed to still be walking, uh, still have all my limbs, and especially still be alive. And uh, after that incident, I was able to call back to my wife um, prior to the Army contacting her Mm -hmm. about the situation and was able to console her and help her understand what happened. Uh, before she got a call from the army telling telling her that I was wounded. Well, well, thanks very much, Jesse. I appreciate you uh, you telling the story. It's a it's a pretty amazing story, like you said. Um, I, it's probably the only one. No matter how long we keep this podcast going, it's probably the only time we're going to have an aviator tell an IED story. Uh, so I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. It's, it's been great.
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.